Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. find myself actually getting more and more frustrated and actually with the, the kind of the criminal element that surrounds the homeless. And I right. find myself, the more I learn about this, the more protective I get of the homeless folks hmm. themselves and, hmm. and also more tolerance. On today's episode, I wanted to move the conversation away from the big cities and talk about how homelessness impacts some of the smaller communities that may fly under the radar in our national dialogue. In Olympia, Washington, which lies roughly halfway between Seattle and Portland, the city's parks and recreation staff are, like so many other parks departments, becoming the front line in confronting homelessness in their community. Recently, Olympia's parks director, Paul Simons, and Silvana Niehauser, who oversees stewardship and environmental programs, were able to sit down with me and discuss how homelessness has impacted their community and what their agency is doing to confront the crisis with compassion. So Olympia is on the southern tip of Puget Sound. So we are in western Washington, um, probably about an hour, if there's no traffic, about an hour south of Seattle. Um, We're also about an hour and a half to two hours north of Portland. Uh, We're the only downtown between Tacoma and Portland. And uh, we're also the state capital, the capital seat for the state. So... um, there's a lot of uh, activity that happens in Olympia. Uh, there's a lot of um, government employment jobs. Uh, folks typically work for the state or the county or the city or one of the, the two colleges in town. And so there's a lot of um, government or the school district's another one. A lot of government employees in the community. Um, it's, a, it's a uniquely positioned community because you've got access to some pretty incredible amenities. Uh, you can get them out right here in a day. You can get to Mount St. Helens, you can get to the Hood Canal, you can get to the ocean, you can get to Seattle, Portland. Um, It's really in a unique location that allows you to really explore some of Washington's most incredible sites. And how how many people live in Olympia year-round? So I think there's a little over 51,000 in Olympia, but we're also neighboring uh, the cities of Lacey and Tumwater, uh, and I think all of Thurston County, which spreads out into some rural areas, is around 250 or 260,000 range, so it gives you an idea. Um, but Lacey, Tumwater, and Olympia make up the kind of the the main urban part of the, the region. Right. So relatively small city in comparison to things. But you mentioned this morning when you were talking, Paul, that you had come over from a smaller community in eastern Washington and had your eyes opened uh, to issues around homelessness when you came to Olympia. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, so previously I was the director for Cheney Parks and Recreation, which is a small town in eastern Washington, just southwest of Spokane. And um, there was, at least at the time I was there, there was not a visible homelessness issue, um, really almost none, uh, at least that you could see. Uh, I'm sure there was homelessness happening that was maybe more hidden or on the fringes or in the rural areas, but... Um, as a community, it wasn't something that we were regularly struggling with. Um, and so coming to Olympia, where there is uh, an escalating challenge um, and actually a history of challenge. I mean, this isn't a new thing. Um, when I talk to folks, they said they were having the same problems back in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it, unfortunately, 
the cycles continue and it's still going on. So I learned a lot, uh, had a little bit of culture shock myself and um, continue to learn. Uh, it's an evolving issue. It uh, changes just when you figure out one element of it that kind of morphs into something else and then you're scrambling to figure that out. And so um, I've got incredible staff, Silvana's here, and there's some other folks that are on our team that um, work very hard to address it in a compassionate and um, uh, sensitive way. Uh, but at the same time, we also have a job to do in terms of providing um, clean, safe, and accessible parks for the community. And unfortunately, um, these two things uh, don't always uh, aren't always compatible, and mm -hmm. so um, finding that balance of being compassionate and honoring folks' um, human rights and their constitutional rights, uh, and and being respectful, and then also on the other side of the coin, um, making sure people have access to uh, experience our parks in a safe and clean and accessible fashion. It's it's a it's a tough balance, and um, we find ourselves every day. Uh, uh, working hard to find where that where that delicate line is, and um, I think our opinions and, and philosophies are ever changing um, as we as we learn more and grow. So, how, how is homelessness arriving in your parks? I mean, I think of park systems as the individual parks themselves, mm -hmm. uh, the connections between parks, community centers, and then the programs that are offered in both of those settings. How, how is homelessness arriving across those four areas? Well, one thing I think to note is that our parks are free. Mm -hmm. So we don't have any type of a entry fee or anything like that, as well mm -hmm. as access to our community center. So um, that allows folks, no matter what economic background they have, um, to access our public space. Um, so, you know, it, our parks have facilities like restrooms and things that meet people's basic needs. Mm -hmm. um, so naturally, I think folks who um, are unhoused are going to be, you know, they have those needs that need to be met too. And so um, the parks allow for a place that's free. They don't have to buy a cup of coffee or a sandwich or whatever to access the restroom like you would for a business. Um, and so um, the parks provide that. And I think that that ends up being how a lot of um, folks access our parks is that, um, you know, they're, they're meeting a need. Yeah, yeah. And I'm hearing you say, Paul, that it, it creates at least the perception of an unsafe environment after a certain level. I mean, you're probably fine with the one person going in to use the bathroom, but there begins to be a clustering or uh, an encampment or what, what happens that people start to feel unsafe? Yeah, you know, and actually that's where I think this issue stretches way beyond homelessness. Um, mm -hmm. We're dealing with mental health uh, crisis. We're dealing with substance abuse and the opioid epidemic. Um, we're, uh, um, we're there's housing crisis. So I mean, there's so many elements that that surround this that change. To, to be honest, the the homeless folks are not the issue when it comes to safety. At least as far as what I've seen, um, there is a criminal element of drug dealing. Mm -hmm. And there's a group of folks that unfortunately are taking advantage of our most vulnerable and they swirl and there's with that world comes violence and um, there's a huge uh, kind of like just it's almost like a big wrecking ball. And as it comes around, it, it has impacts on our parks and on our community and our users and our businesses. You know, this isn't just a parks issue. This is a community wide issue. We're just kind of one 
one element of it, but um, it's I, I find myself actually getting more and more frustrated and actually with the, the kind of the criminal element that surrounds the homeless. And I right. find myself, the more I learn about this, the more protective I get of the homeless folks mm. themselves and, mm. and also more tolerance. You know, I think there's a, there's a bias out there. People see someone that's homelessness and it triggers emotions and some people have a higher tolerance and a higher level of compassion and other people have no compassion. And as city employees, we're serving all of those people, including the homeless folks that are, are looking for a place to be safe and accepted. And so, um, like I said, it's, it's finding that balance. And um, for us, what we try to focus on is behavior. Certain things are not acceptable. Um, and so if you're homeless and you want to be in our park, great. They're public facilities. They're designed for that. That's okay for that. But, you know, if you're going to accumulate large amounts of trash or if you're going to leave hypodermic needles or if you're going to start fights, if you're going to, you know, those types of behaviors are not okay. And so that's when we bring in our rangers and and take action is when when park rules are being broken and when there's an element of of safety being threatened. But... um, that would be the case whether someone was homeless or not homeless. Um, our rangers would get involved, and so I feel like as a society, it's gotten this label of homeless, but it's it's so much more than that. And actually, it, I feel like the homeless folks are getting a really bad rep from this other contingent of folks that are almost manipulating the situation yeah. for their yeah. own benefit. Right, right. And I would agree with that. And I think too, understanding um, each individual has a story, and giving folks. Um, you know, time to share that story if they'd like. Um, and that helps you to understand as a frontline employee um, where people are coming from and builds respect. And that is something that we definitely try to approach, um, you know, when we're dealing with these behavior issues is to first build that relationship and um, respect with an individual, treat them the same that we would treat anybody else. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention is that I think it's really um, important for staff to have, you know, this training and understanding. Um, Recently, I went to a training on trauma-informed care, and it was, um, you know, understanding when people have chronic trauma um, in their life, and homelessness can cause that, um, as well as growing up in an abusive home or things like that, that the way that the brain functions it's going to be different than somebody who has not experienced that trauma. So from a safety perspective, when you go into like an encampment, you know, there's things that you don't want to do to trigger their fight or flight. Mm -hmm. Um, And so understanding, you know, trauma-informed care and how healthcare providers have used this um, understanding of how the brain works and whatnot for years um, and then extending it into the jobs that we do so that we can approach safely and we can have those interactions. Um, so that has been something that we've recently discovered as part of um, working with this community um, as that a lot of folks have experienced. Sure. You know, these sort of things. And it's not just having compassion for it, but really understanding how that triggers sometimes that behavior mm-hmm. that somebody from the outside might see um, that you know, somebody flipped out or lost their cool real quick. Well, if you understand how, um, you know, years of trauma can influence and or impact the brain and that response, I think it's 
you know, it helps you to understand a little bit more. And we're constantly educating the public about um, when we get a complaint about somebody setting up a camp and we go down and it's somebody who has all their belongings with them, but they're not, they're just sitting on the bench and they're not doing anything, you know. So then we go back and we educate the public about, you know, folks who don't have a house are allowed to be in our parks as well. Um, There's no exclusion and that we focus on the behavior and I try to get to the root of the complaint to see if there's a behavior associated with what somebody was doing mm-hmm. um, and why that complaint came in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, working with understanding that people's perception or their maybe experience or encounter may influence, you know, their what they're seeing. And um, if I'm not, if I get a complaint about something and I don't see a behavior issue, just kind of having that dialogue. Right. And so I think there's a little bit of education that goes to the general public as well. So how might one of your staff who's had this trauma-informed care training approach the issue differently than what they would have done previously? So one of the things I'm really proud about, because uh, this Ranger program is newly expanded, Savannah's been working in the Ranger role for several years now, I think eight years now, um, but the actual con- patrolling component was pretty minor until just a couple of years ago, and then we've drastically expanded mm. it to where we have people now full-time patrolling our parks and uh, when I did the ride along last summer one of the things I was most proud about was our ranger when he approaches someone whether it be in an encampment or whether they're just hanging out in one of our parks the first thing he says is hey how are you doing and what do you need and that's the approach that's how he starts every interaction how are you doing and what do you need Mm. and it it really diffuses you know there for them they're seeing somebody approach them who's in a uniform Mm -hmm. uh, and in the position of authority and so uh, my my hunch is that they've probably had some not good interactions in their times, and so to have somebody come in and defuse and treat them as humans with respect and dignity um, and show some type of care and compassion for them really uh, helps put us on to a, a much more level playing field and allows us to build a relationship and, um, you know, maybe they're doing some things that are breaking some of our park rules. Maybe they aren't, but it, it, it kind of creates that more safe platform for our staff to engage with them. And um, and so I, I, I'm, uh, what Solana's built in terms of the Ranger program, the people that we have doing those jobs are so important. And that level of compassion mm-hmm. and all that training has been a lot, a lot to credit to her for creating that culture. So let's talk about the Ranger yeah, program because yeah. we mentioned it a couple of times and I don't think people know what that is. I mean, I know a lot of communities don't have a ranger program. Is it law enforcement? Is it something different? What is it? For us, um, it's not law enforcement. Uh, We're not commissioned. Um, But what it is is a program where we have a uniform presence in our park. Um, It's a soft authority is what I like to say um, because we're dealing with things on the lowest level possible. We're trying to de-escalate, engage people in conversation, help folks understand why our park rules are such. And in the case of working with the unhoused community is connecting them to resources in the community and just offering that every chance that we can, because eventually as we build a relationship, somebody might trust and take up, a, you know, and that one time is all it takes, mm-hmm. you know, to get the ball rolling. So, um, so the rangers um, work with folks in, if they are camping in our parks, we, we don't allow camping. Um, and so if they are, then to um, work with them to 
you know, educate them about our park rules and um, move them out of the current encampment situation that they're in. And so, um, you know, they first make contact, talk to them, see if there's anything they need, give them um, a list of resources that are available in the community. Uh, we give them bags, you know, these little gestures, they're like, here's some bags for your stuff so it doesn't get wet because it's very wet in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> and, you know, here's some bags for your trash. Can I take anything out? You know, because they don't have trash service like hmm. you and I might have. Hmm. And so, you know, can I take anything for you that you like? Do you need a sharps container? No judgment. Just, you know, if you need it, you need it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, well, I'm going to come back tomorrow and check on things and see how it's going. And they will check up in between the time that, you know, they let them know that they need to move and when they're supposed to move by, um, they'll check up, check back. Do you need anything? Can I take any of the trash out for you? You know, and stuff like that. And if folks need a little bit more time, they have the um, support to work with folks and and make that judgment call. So, and part of um, the training that our rangers receive is um, crisis intervention training, which is a law enforcement um, required, it's a required course for most law enforcement in our state, but the, um, they've opened it up to our rangers and it's taught by healthcare professionals. And because they realize that we have a lot of times that first contact, um, with folks and we're not, because we're not commissioned and we're not tied to dispatch and emergency calls, we have more time in the field to spend with people. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be tied to our vehicle to respond to the next emergency, mm-hmm. like, you know, fire and police. So this gives us more time to, go in and check, you know, off trail, you know, going a half mile, talk to people who are in the woods and whatnot. And so um, we have an advantage there. And I think that, um, you know, the rangers need some of the same training as law enforcement, but we know that we're trying to deal with stuff on the lowest level. Right. I'd say, too, the rangers don't just focus on homelessness issues. We have... um, we have a off-leash problem. We have um, another, <laughs> another part of their role is um, uh, building relationships with folks who maybe neighbor our park properties. And so, you know, we had, we had an incident where there was a church next to one of our parks and um, the bathroom was being misused regularly to the point where people couldn't access it. And so our ranger then worked with the church to kind of figure out what was going on, assess the situation, and then make contact with people that were abusing it and then the problem was solved. And so the Rangers are really our ability to be proactive as problems arrive uh, or arise um, beyond homelessness. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing that they do, which uh, uh, is because of their patrols and the, where they go and the places they see, oftentimes they're in places that our regular maintenance staff never make it to because mm-hmm. our maintenance staff are focused on getting bathrooms opened up and doing the landscape. And, and so sometimes we don't make it out into the remote areas of our park system. And what what I've found is that our rangers actually probably spend about 60 to 70 percent of their time actually picking up garbage in some of these remote destinations within the open space areas of our parks. And so that's another pretty amazing benefit is that, you know, they're they're there in this this present. They're, they're there to have build a positive presence in our parks, but they're also um, really helping out with some maintenance things and cleaning up some environmentally sensitive areas and um uh, it's just, it's an incredible resource. Yeah. It, sound, it sounds like the Rangers are like the elite troops of all your frontline staff in, in a certain way. Um, I wonder if, if you ever had a problem in convincing 
your administrators, your elected officials to fund this type of program. What's the story that that got them to the table and what's the value that they see this program adding? I think that um, having had so long of work in the role kind of around the edges for so long um, really built credibility towards it so that people understood, you know, what it, what it was and why it, why it was needed. I think the problems have escalated to the point, and we use a lot of data. Um, Solana and her team and the whole maintenance crew track um, the needles that we pick up in our parks. Um, we track the encampment notices that we serve. We track complaints that we receive. And so we get we have all those data sets that we then share with our elected leaders and other folks. And um, I think, you know, one of the other things, too, is that that focus, that really compassionate approach that our rangers take, I think, has built a lot of credibility for them. I think if they were coming in as kind of like a hardline enforcement and had that approach, I don't think we would have received as much um, support. And then simultaneously, we actually um, recently passed a Metropolitan Park District, so our, our, our voters, our electorate, voted to tax themselves additionally in one of the there were kind of four aspects of that ballot measure. One was park acquisition, park development, uh, maintenance, and then safety. And this um, ranger program is kind of the primary focus of that that park safety component. And so um, that's what allowed us to go from the eight hours a week patrolling to now having an expanded full-time dedicated staff. That's great. Yeah. And I also would like to say too that um, our leadership has gone out in the field with our staff and seen firsthand, you know, our approach and some of the problems that, you know, we're encountering and trying to deal with. And so um, I give a lot of credit to our leadership for taking initiative to get out there for themselves as well and mm-hmm. see that. And, um, you know, I see our council members and our city manager in our parks all the time, um, you know, and, and I think that's great. And, um, that they make time to connect with the park users as well as to understand um, what staff are, are facing and dealing with. Yeah. So. You mentioned at one point the opioid crisis, which mm-hmm. obviously is hitting everyone these days. Um, what are some of the ways that you've responded to that, both physically and programmatically or partnerships? Um, so we partnered with a Thurston County Needle Exchange, mm-hmm. um, and we did a lot of... Um, started a lot of dialogue with them about the problems that we were seeing. Our maintenance staff were reporting um, more and more. We were hearing about the needles in our restroom facilities and things like that, parking lots. And, and, um, and you know, we had an instance where somebody from the public, um, you know, their child didn't touch it but found it. And that's, you know, really alarming. And so we started having conversations. But at the same time, we started tracking how many needles we were finding and where we were finding them at. And that was really important because um, we could capture the sense. So, you know, anecdotally, you hear the stories from the staff and you're thinking, you know, how bad is this? Is it, you know, is it as bad as it feels? Mm-hmm. And then when you start tracking the data, it gives you more information. So we started doing that. And, um, and then we made some operational changes and we put sharps containers and every one of our restrooms because the idea behind it is um, that loose needles create more potential harm to the public and exposure to our staff um, than ones that are safely secured in a sharps container. And that hasn't gone without issues, um, but we work with Thurston County Needle Exchange on how to go about doing that, getting advice from them. 
wrote some policies and procedures around picking up and handling these items um, and make sure that our staff have bloodborne pathogens training and all the equipment and whatnot to go with it. But, um, you know, we found the ones that are inside of our restrooms are used more for their intended purpose than the ones that are located outside of the facilities. Those often get vandalized mm. and the needles get stolen mm. out of them. And so um, we didn't want to create more okay. of a health issue. So uh, we removed those ones. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. So you mentioned I mean, that this is something that your frontline staff is encountering all the time. I wonder if the attitude has changed. You, you said that your attitude has evolved. Um, I imagine that this issue has a variety of opinions on your staff. And some of them are probably on the very compassionate side. Some of them are probably on the, this is a nuisance. This isn't what I signed up for. First of all, are both of those, is that assumption correct? And two, have you seen an evolution as you have this conversation with your staff? And as the problem has gotten more visible, more present in their day-to-day lives, has the, the, the sense of Parks' role in addressing this issue evolved over time? I definitely. It's a constant evolution, and, and there are folks that um, I think there's days, some of even myself, where I have more compassion than other days. You know, we all kind of hit our limits with frustrating behaviors and, so, and, and things like that. Um, one of the things that we've tried really hard to do uh, as a department is to focus on what we can control. Mm. So much about this is way beyond parts. Mm-hmm. And um, we can spin our wheels for days worrying about, you know, the larger problems. And, and, and while I'm optimistic and hopeful that someone will get a large-scale solution, that's not our role as a parks department. And if we spend too much time chasing those large solutions, something's going to collapse on what our regular duties are. And so finding that balance of how much time do we dedicate it, how much time do we don't, really what we've tried to do is take on the mantra, let's really just look at what we can control. We can control our policies. We can control how we train our staff. We can control uh, how, how they're operating and making sure that they're operating in safe manners. Um, we can control our resource allocations, and so it may require bringing on a security guard for our community center or expanding the ranger program or making sure everyone has proper protective equipment. Um, there, there's all these things that we can control, and so you know we can change the landscaping so that there's more visibility. All those strategies. So, so we we launched our Safe and Secure Parks Initiative, which is an inter- internal work group about four or five years ago that people from all over our department, the recreation programmers, the arts people, the front desk people, the um, uh, maintenance staff, the landscaping crew, the ball field crew, the rover, you know, everybody who this is impacting, we kind of got a representative around the table and we came up with a list of like 50 things that we can control. And then over the last five years, we've just been implementing one step after another because while we can't fix the problem. Unfortunately, I wish we could, uh, but we can't. It's just not realistic. So what can we do to at least better manage it um, within the authority that we have and the resources that we have? So that's that's really the approach. So I think what's helped with that is I think the staff have gone from, you know, I don't, I don't, victim is a strong word, but almost kind of that mentality of this is happening to us. I'm scared. I'm worried. I don't know what to do to at least we're doing something about it. And the situation for us is better 
And it's also, uh, more importantly, beyond our staff, it's better for our park patrons and right. people using our facilities um, because they're also impacted by this. Right. And I don't want to, people to think that we're not doing anything because by collecting data and by um, being able to tell our story um, to the leadership and the leadership takes that to our state representatives and stuff like that, it's helping paint a better picture because I don't think that folks initially thought about the impacts to parks and public spaces. And so it's important to tell that piece when looking, you know, at the whole picture. And so um, folks that are making statewide um, decisions to, you know, try to deal with these issues, if they have more information about what is going on in our industry, um, and some of the challenges that we face, I think it helps them. So, so that information is getting shared, um, and our city's um, executive team works together on this issue across departments. So I think for our staff to know that the work that they're doing on the ground is important and it's being shared up and across departments. We're not just working in our silo. Um, we're you know, being collaborative about it helps. And so when that message goes up and we bring it back down and show gratitude to our staff for taking time to collect that data, for taking time to take pictures of, you know, some of the challenges um, like vandalism and things like that, it's, I think, helpful to make sure that communication is going back and forth and there's not a bottleneck. So. Well, I, I really appreciate to hear that you're doing it across all of your programs offerings internally because I think that that might be the first time I've heard of someone doing that and bringing everyone to the table who probably was really frustrated and saying what are the solutions and you identified 50 of them what, what were some of those things that those staff members brought to the table um, policy changes uh, in terms of access to our community center uh, and how we manage where people come in and where they leave from uh, it's an outdated facility and it's got five entrances on all different sides of the building and so I remember actually when I was interviewing for the job, it was a random Saturday. I just kind of walked in the building and walked through the whole thing, and it's it's open and vulnerable. And so really taking a look at some of our steps that we take to manage our, our properties, looking at landscaping strategies, um, the Sharps containers in the restroom was a, was born out of that that effort and some of those ideas. And and really what I found is the ideas come from the frontline staff that are, mm-hmm. that are doing it. And, Lighting's another big one that, um, you know, when you've got visibility um, and lighting, it discourages behavior, the illicit behavior. So um, not sure if you're familiar with SEPTED or Crime Prevention through Environmental Design. Yeah. So that has been um, something that we've in maintenance done as well as in facilities and making sure that um, we follow those best practices and then even our design, you know, our planners and our engineers look at that stuff too. And and I want to be careful too, while we've done a lot, uh, we're not, we're not free from issues. So we've done a lot so that it's better managed, but we still struggle every single day with challenges and so do our park users. And so this is, um, while things are better than they were five years ago, uh, because of some steps we've taken, we still struggle regularly. Mm -hmm. And so the other, you know, the other side of this challenge is keeping morale up and you know, something will get vandalized, and so the staff will spend, you know, a day or two fixing what was vandalized, and a week later it's vandalized again. And, um, you know, we struggle with 
destructive behavior and violent behavior and drug use and it, it's an ongoing ongoing thing so that's as department leadership we work really hard to try and keep people's morale up and one of the things too that that I've learned over time, and I think this has been important for me, especially coming from Cheney and, and, and then seeing how large this problem is in Olympia, um, is we have to be careful that we don't let uh, ourselves become defined by this issue. Because as a Parks, Arts, and Recreation Department, we do so much more and a lot of cool stuff and a lot of really good stuff in the community. And um, one of the things that I think is unfortunate is sometimes this issue is so so big that it, it almost changes your identity and you, you spend so much time talking about it and dealing with it and trying to manage it where attention goes, energy flows. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I've tried to, I think that's kind of the next phase of my evolution is really making sure that there's a balance. Yes, we need to continue to focus on this. We also have to keep doing good work, right. uh, providing spectacular parks uh, because um, while there might be a few rough experiences that happen for people and interactions that are unfortunate that, that people come across in our park, every day there are thousands of people using our parks, building memories, kids are growing, experiencing nature, experiencing the, wa- experiencing the waterfront, and all these good things are happening, and that has to be what defines us. So while we do have a big challenge in front of us, um, uh, there's so much more, and, and, and again, we can't let it be. Can I say one thing too? And um, it's, I think our department has a good culture of being supportive and lifting each other up. And so one of the things that, um, you know, the Rangers are dealing with negative behaviors ongoing, you know, day after day and whatnot is, um, you know, the other day for Earth Day, we had a turnout at our volunteer event of 130 volunteers. And so I had asked the Rangers to come by and help with the event. You know, there's, there's a lot of volunteers to manage and whatnot. But it was really uplifting because we had tons of kids and families that came out and they, it was, you know, they loved it. It was something that was a a positive use that they were getting to see and be a part of. And when we do junior ranger adventures, these kids that want to earn a badge and be a ranger and they look at, you know, our staff as like, oh, a superhero sort of thing. (laughs) So, you know, I had them, we went into a daycare and did a little junior ranger bug activity and I had, you know, these guys and their uniforms, you know, working with our, um, you know, kind of more naturalist staff and, and whatnot. And um, it was exciting and it's good. So um, try to have those positive wins. And um, on the maintenance side of things, I know we celebrate some of their amazing landscapes and, you know, accomplishments and take pictures and highlight it at meetings and things like that so that um, they feel valued. Maybe the last question is, let's take these two threads. Let's let's take all the amazing work that you all do as a department uh, and that often goes unheralded and take the issue of homelessness. And like, are, do you have any favorite success stories? Do you have anything where like there was a great interaction, there was someone who was lifted up and was able to come back and work for you guys or whatever it is? I have a couple stories. <laughs> so um, we had, um, well, the first one is, a couple that I encountered when I was rangering um, that was out in one of our um, wildlife areas at um, Grass Lake Nature Park. And um, they had come in from a rural community and um, they had some challenges. Their um, kids were in the state's care and, and they really wanted to get, you know, custody of their kids back and whatnot. So they were here because they were closer to the court system. 
and whatnot, but um, I worked with them for a couple of weeks and was able to get them into a legal camping situation um, with one of our nearby state parks that was still on the bus line because they didn't have transportation. And that to me was, in a sense, though, you know, they didn't have a permanent home, they were making strides to get there and working with them. Um, and I felt like that was a really good win. And I never ran into them again out on the streets. And so, you know, I, my hope is that something good came of um, them being able to get into a situation where they had access to what they needed, um, but they were able to do it in a way that was legal and not, you know, a facility that was set up for camping mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, had camp spots and access to water and restrooms and things like that instead of in remote areas. And then another one was um, down at one of our downtown parks. There was an individual who had a mental crisis and um, had tried to harm himself and um, ran into the park. It was a definite emergency. He was bleeding everywhere. He ran into the park and two other folks from the street community immediately started calling 911 and, um, you know, taking um, first aid measures. You know, our ranger got the first aid kit out and whatnot. And um, I look at things like that and they're part of the community and um, compassionate people, just like everybody else. And to me, that was a success story. And when that individual who had the crisis, um, you know, got treatment and was out, our ranger would check in and be like, how are you doing today? How are things going? Are you staying clean? Are you, you know, are you going to your appointments and having a little bit of that accountability? And that's a win story for our rangers. So. Yeah, I had the opportunity last summer to do a ride along with one of our rangers and the whole day it just blew my mind. Uh, uh, I, we started the day off on one of our, uh, one of our trails, the Woodland Trail, and uh, we came across a fellow that was walking down the trail and Said, hey Lee, that's our ranger. Thanks for the pants. And um, <laughs> apparently, our ranger had given him a pair of pants because he had a job interview. And uh, you know, he said he was getting the job, and he was very excited about it. And as we're driving away, our ranger, you know, he said to me, "I'm not sure if he's getting the job or not, but we're going to do. You know, we're going to still celebrate and and support him and help him and that sort of thing." And so, you know, seeing that interaction was pretty powerful. And then uh, later that day, we. Ran across a lady who just happened to be kind of sitting sitting in one of our parks and chatting, and so we sat down and um, talked to her for a little bit. She was very chatty, and uh, at the end, as we were walking away, she said, "Hey Lee, thanks for the notes." And uh, he said, "Oh yeah, no problem." And we walked away, and, and Lee was telling me what what had happened. And apparently, a couple of days earlier, she was in one of the parks and was very upset, almost hysterically crying. And he was, you know, he was taking these leaves and just writing things on it, like. Um, things will get better. You'll overcome your demons. And he said he kind of just, he didn't really say anything. He just listened to her. But while she was talking, he was writing these notes on these mm-hmm. leaves and just um, kind of laying them on the ground in front of her. And she apparently saved all those leaves. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just to have that kind of see that uplifting moment and in interaction that um, I don't think he was just showing off for me because I'm his director and I was out there. I've, I've seen him do this. Time and time again, it's his characters. It's it's he's very genuine about it. He truly cares for the people and wants to help uplift them so that they can hopefully get to a better spot in their lives. And knowing that we have someone out there every single day connecting with the community that needs it, 
um, is something that that's probably my biggest uh, my whole career. That's probably one of the things I'm most proud of uh, because I think that's where we really are putting the resources where a need is, and uh, it's just it's it's very exciting. They provide hope for folks who have no hope or have very little, and and then also checking in. I've seen that with um, a gal who needed to get her license reinstated. She had um, gotten through school to become a CNA, and he was like, did you get your license reinstated? And every day that week, he was hounding her in a sense every time she came into the park, did you get your license reinstated? You, you got to get that job. You need it for you and your kids. And then she came in, she goes, guess what, <laughs> I got my license. And there was this little, like, he was, oh, that's awesome. And that was me. Everybody needs cheerleaders, you know. Awesome. Well, thank you both for sharing the story of Olympia Parks and all the great work you're doing. And good luck on pushing it forward to the next phase. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com.